This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. The Black Lives Matter movement has come a long way in a very short time. In the matter of a single month, it has gone from an afterthought for most Americans to the leading topic of conversation in the nation and a major catalyst for action. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have taken to the streets in support of the movement's message, in some instances even painting it on the streets. And polling shows that a majority of Americans are now in agreement that black lives matter. Real change appears to be following this support, as elected leaders in some cities have begun the process of seriously rethinking policing. At the same time, some supporters say that one of the highest profile outgrowths of the demonstrations in Seattle, the so-called Capitol Hill-occupied protests, is shifting focus away from the aims of the movement. History dictates that it's only a matter of time before America moves past its most recent shock at Black Death and settles on another story. But what if this time is different? Where will this movement be in another month or a year? This week I'm speaking with Nikita Oliver, one of the leading voices of the Black Lives Matter movement in Seattle. We talk about the movement, the demands that protesters are making of city government, what has been accomplished, and where she sees the fight for black lives going from here. Then, later, I'll be speaking with Crosscut reporter Hannah Weinberger about the other big story of the moment, coronavirus, and the challenges facing the Seattle region as it opens for business. Okay, I've got the schedule for the next couple episodes here. Next week, I'll be speaking with John Dickerson about his new book, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. The week after that, I'll be chatting with former Obama campaign manager David Pluff about his book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. So, yeah, I've been reading a lot of books about presidents lately. So if you have an idea for someone you'd like to hear me interview who maybe didn't write a book about presidents, let us know. Just email talks at crosscut.com and tell us who and why. If we think they'd make a great guest, we'll reach out and make it happen. Okay, on with the show. I'm speaking now with Nikita Oliver. Nikita is a Seattle attorney, artist, and organizer who is one of the leading voices in the city's Black Lives Matter movement. She is also co-director of the Creative Justice Program, and in 2017, she ran for mayor as a member of the Seattle People's Party, and she came very close to a general election face-off against current mayor Jenny Durkin. Nikita, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you for having me. So, I wanted to talk about one moment in the last few weeks. On June 3rd, after six days of protest, you stood on the steps of City Hall and you read out loud in front of a huge crowd of protesters a list of demands to Mayor Durkin. And I'm wondering for our listeners if you could just recount what those demands are. Yeah, the first demand is to defund Seattle Police Department by at least 50%. The second demand is to then invest those dollars in community-based public health and public safety strategies. And the third demand is to release all protesters. What kind of progress has been made to see those demands met? Have they been met in any way? No, to be transparent, they have not. And I do think there are council members who, who believe in the movement, who want to use their position as a Seattle City Council member to see defund the police become a reality. So 
I do think in the coming weeks we will see Seattle City Council members make strides in that direction. But as far as it goes for the executive office, we have not seen any significant steps forward to even make a plan around defunding the police. Hmm. Decriminalize Seattle, which is the coalition that I build with, has signed on to the King County Equity Now demands, which also includes some significant land acquisition that we believe will benefit Black community in Seattle. The city has made some public statements regarding Fire Station 6 and their intent to eventually see that be in the care of Black community. But there's been no clear trajectory or timeline, no contract signed, no deed given in that regard. And as it pertains to defunding the police, Mayor Durkin actually said in a press conference that that she doesn't intend to do that. Rather, what she'll do is she will find $100 million elsewhere in the budget. You know, the, the key to that second demand is about putting in place the infrastructure that makes police unnecessary. It's putting in the preventative measures that stop violence, and then it's putting in the healing and justice measures for when violence does occur. When did defund the police first come into your vocabulary? Defunding the police is not a new idea. It's actually a part of a much larger strategy of divestment from harmful structures, you know, white supremacist structures, racialized capitalist structures, structures that, especially as we think about the criminal punishment system, everything from police to courts and prosecution to prisons, is pointing out that many of this is built upon racism and white supremacy, is built upon the 13th Amendment, which... Um, essentially evolved slavery into the criminal punishment system. It says that so long as a person has been convicted of a crime, they can be held in involuntary servitude or slavery. And so for me, conversations about things like defunding the police or divesting from the criminal punishment system started with the No New Youth Jail campaign in 2012. Just the overall understanding that there is a whole system of oppression that is built upon the stealing of land and the genocide of Native peoples and also the exploitation of Black labor. And so for me personally, defunding the police is a part of a much broader analysis around what does it actually take to make society safe and thriving for everyone, including Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Right now, the way our society is set up is it's set up to protect the wealthy and oftentimes to protect white folks. And that is why we see so much systemic violence perpetuated against Black and Indigenous people. So in the two weeks since you stood on the steps of City Hall, the the protests have continued and a lot of things have happened. The city's East Precinct was abandoned by police and setting the stage for the large occupied protests uh, in the Capitol Hill neighborhood right now. Um, There have been more protests, one massive silent march, other marches. Did it take you by surprise how, um, how large this moment is right now? Or is this what you were expecting to happen at some point? I mean, if we look at all of the factors that are happening, it is not shocking there are so many people in the street. Um, In a lot of ways, I see it as akin to the 1968 Poor People's Movement, when we Hmm. saw an extreme amount of economic crises. We saw the labor movement, especially as it pertained to sanitation workers in Memphis, uh, organizing around the I'm a Man campaign, talking about human dignity, having fair wages, having fair working conditions. There was the war approaching and people talking about being anti-imperialist and addressing the imperialism of the United States. 
and you had the civil rights movement was at its climax. The conversation around racial injustice was becoming more a part of the mainstream, especially as television allowed more folks to see what was happening in the streets. And so, you know, if we look at that example of a convergence of economic justice movements, labor movements, and racial injustice movements, we're actually seeing a very similar convergence right now as COVID-19 has exasperated pre-existing conditions of economic inequality. Mm -hmm. The murder of George Floyd was very, you know, the, the officers involved were incredibly bold. The man knew he was being filmed for nine minutes. George Floyd was on the ground, you know, saying, I can't breathe, crying out for his mother. Ahmaud Arbery had just been murdered in February by white vigilantes not to mention a lot of people being out of work. Um, and then you combine that with the, the health inequalities that are happening. Black folks across the nation are dying at the highest rates from COVID-19. And so I think uh, we're seeing a similar convergence of things that we saw in the 60s. And, you know, that the technology advancement in this case being the internet and the ability to not just simply live stream the murders, but to also live stream the protest and get a different narrative out, even when mainstream media fails to report holistically, I think is having an impact on how many people are in the streets. I'm curious about the uh, the occupied protest on Capitol Hill. You know, so we're, we're speaking on Monday after a sobering weekend where um, three people were shot, one of whom died. Uh, in the midst of all this, um, organizers called for a kind of refocusing of the protest. Um, there have also been some calls to, to maybe wind down the protest, even from uh, folks who support it. If the occupied protest ended now, how would it be remembered? I know that a lot of folks, because of the way the media narrative have positioned me as a quote-unquote leader as it relates to CHOP or CHAZ, and I, I want to be clear, I, I don't consider myself that. I consider myself just a part of this larger Black liberation movement. Mm. And as an organizer, I have to be concerned or knowledgeable about CHOP and at least be in conversation with organizers there because, you know, this is a movement with a diversity of tactics, but hopefully a set of unified goals around the demands that we spoke about earlier. Violence on Capitol Hill is not new. Before the East Precinct was vacated, someone drove right into the crowd Someone was shot and we saw the police explain it away. And that same block where the young man died this weekend, a woman died, I think, less than a year ago while the police station was fully staffed with all of the officers and the East Precinct was was doing what the East Precinct does. And so I still think the relevance of the conversation around police don't keep us safe is still very true. CHOP is an, is an occupied protest area that is functioning sheerly on the resources that marginalized people can bring to the table. And, and part of the reason why we're talking about defunding the police and investing in community-based public safety and public health is just the acknowledgement that we know it requires resource, infrastructure, and money to build the sorts of services and support that actually help all community members be safe. So what we're seeing happening on the Hill as it relates to the area around Chop Chaz is not a byproduct of Chop Chaz. It is what was already pre-existing there. We want a public safety and public health infrastructure that actually works for everyone. Um, mm. If Chop were to end today, how do I think it would be remembered? I think that really depends on who you are and what your understanding is of the space. I think it would depend on whether or not 
someone understood the value of an occupation or economic disruption as a tool for agitation that actually creates the pressure necessary to force the bureaucracy to, to meet a movement's demands. I talked to my family who lives in the Midwest on a regular basis, and if we were to go based off the information they're getting from mainstream media, Chop Chaz sounds like this incredibly out of control area. But when they speak to me on the phone and I show them photos of it and I tell them about the teachings and about native relatives coming and doing land blessings and teaching history about the, the, the relationship between black liberation and native sovereignty, or told them about the musicians and the artists that are coming out to, to make protest music or to make protest art to, to amplify our demands within the space, it is very much a different experience on the ground. You point out that um, that Chop Chaz is one part of a sort of multifaceted movement, that, there's, that there are a lot of things happening. What are we missing if we are only focused on the occupied protest right now? What has been happening in the past couple weeks that maybe has been overshadowed by that? So many things. First of all, there's all of the work that's been happening leading up to this moment by so many community organizers to develop the sorts of programs that could become our infrastructure post defunding the police. You know, people who have been thinking about abolition and the world beyond that for a long time, such as Coach Dominique Davis with Community Passageways, where they have been developing a network of supports to help young people exit out of the streets or gang violence and into healing spaces, into supportive spaces, into employment and education. There's corner greeters and be safe bros and safe passageways, which are all programs focused specifically on what does it look like to create safety in our communities, whether that's through relationship between community members and business, whether that's through uh, having people highly trained in de-escalation to respond to incidents as soon as they happen, or that's providing safe, supportive housing spaces, then understands that there are a lot of factors that go into why young people and their families might find themselves either in a domestic violence situation or some sort of other violent situation, knowing that there, there's a myriad of things that we need to effectively respond to that and relieve that situation and provide healing. There are organizations like API Chaya, which focuses very specifically on domestic violence and how do we help victims of domestic violence get safe, but also how do we help those who perpetrate you know, domestic violence to heal from whatever is causing the trauma that they are now engaging in this behavior? And, and how do we put supports in all around folks without pushing them into the criminal punishment system? There's Creative Justice that I work for, which is an arts-based healing engaged program that focuses specifically on young people who are trying to exit the criminal legal system. So people have been thinking about this possible new infrastructure for a very long time. And so I think that often gets overshadowed, that it doesn't get the attention it, it deserves when we talk about these investing in community-based public health and public safety. Um, there's also the incredible march that happened on the south side of Seattle. I have never seen a march or even a direct action happen in the Rainier Beach neighborhood, but organized by tons of community members from a lot of different programs and spaces and faith institutions. There is King County Equity Now, which has developed as a coalition of Black-led organizations focused very specifically on acquiring land for Black communities so that we can build Black institutions that function in our city in the way that we need them to, 
and on defunding the police and investing in the public health and public safety structures we know work for us. So there is a significant amount of work that is happening. It's not the sexy work. It's not the work that gets people to click on the, the link, you know, when you write your story, but it is ultimately the work that when we get past this moment of pressure is going to be the spaces in which those dollars that are defunded need to be invested in to build this new public health and public safety infrastructure. What comes next for the movement? I think moving forward, we're going to have to do legislative work. We're going to need to push council members, um, especially if the mayor does not willingly start working on defunding Seattle Police Department. We're going to have to push them to find the political will to get in line with this movement for Black lives. And that is going to require organizing. You know, there, there are different aspects of a movement. There is the activism that happens that creates the pressure. There's the organizing that happens to galvanize people. And then there is the political education so that people understand what the activism is about and what we are galvanizing for. And so I think organizers, you know, whether you're talking decriminalize Seattle, King County Equity Now, Black Lives Matter Seattle, King County, or any other organization that is viewed as a large organizing body in our city around this movement is going to have to figure out how do we, regardless of what our lane is, regardless of what our tactics are, how do we organize the people that are trusting our leadership to be responsive to the demands of the movement as it relates to things like this budget cycle and budgeting has been, and I feel like it's very intentional, is something that is made inaccessible to the everyday average person. It's hard to follow and understand, and yet it is a significant tool for us achieving this first step of abolition, which is defunding the police. So, you know, over the next six weeks, there is going to be a ton of public education campaigns around the budget, around what does participatory budgeting look like and what could it look like in the city of Seattle. And I say participatory budgeting because the current budget process is not participatory. It's decided by a a small group of electeds who don't necessarily have to go to their constituency to decide what they do or how they invest. So how can we be driving our city to do something around the budget that is effectively more democratic, but also more accountable, more transparent and more accessible for community members who really need to see a significant change in how we invest our dollars. And then post that is going to be, how do we organize community to build this new infrastructure? You know, part of the struggle is when you talk about defunding the police is most people cannot imagine a world without police because we've always been dependent upon 911 to deal with situations that, that we are not equipped to address. I mean, we're literally trained as children. If there's a problem call 911 and So as a society, we become dependent upon an occupying force to kind of enforce law and order. And we know that the police don't necessarily take care of people. They often are called once a violent action has occurred or a problem has started. And if we really wanted to be a society that was about seeing everyone thrive, we would actually find preventative measures. We'd make sure everyone has access to housing, clean water, healthy food, employment and education, healthcare. And defunding the police is really just one step to making those new investments and building that new infrastructure. And we're gonna need to have a way as a community, as the city of Seattle, to talk about what is that new infrastructure, to understand what are people actually using 911 for? And then how do we build the new infrastructure to respond to those things? 
whether it's to file a police report because your car got hit and you need that for insurance, or it's a domestic violence situation, or it's an actual violent situation that is going to need de-escalation and medical care, we need to then build these new infrastructures that don't require someone with a badge and a gun to show up and oftentimes make the situation worse and potentially push a person into the criminal punishment system, which we know in the black community doesn't necessarily make our community healthier. So there is a lot of work to be done. I also believe the brilliance to do that work already exists in our communities. It already exists across the nation nationally because a lot of people have been thinking about this moment and and trying to get us ready to develop this new infrastructure in advance of, of what we're in right now. Do you feel optimistic that everyone who's engaged now is going to stay engaged? And how do you attempt to keep them on board as this continues to move forward? Yeah, um, that is a great question. Uh, I want to be optimistic that everyone who's engaged will stay engaged. I also understand the nature of how capitalism works, that as counties and cities start to open back up and people are able to go back to work, there are people who are going to go back to the life that they can. The way that I think a lot of us as organizers are addressing that is trying to figure out how we make the steps towards our demands clear so people can figure out how they can stay invested. Um, but also just being transparent about that, calling calling people in and saying, you know, at some point you're going to get tired or this work's going to not feel as urgent or maybe it will not feel as sexy. And that is really when the rubber meets the road. Uh, uh, are you willing to invest large amounts of your life in this pursuit of racial justice, even when it's not the sexy thing to do or the hot topic? And so, I don't know, time will tell. I don't know if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Mostly what I feel right now is we have a significant opportunity to make a huge leap forward into a radically different future, something I did not think was going to happen in my lifetime. In fact, in law school, I was regularly told by my professors that incremental change was the only option. And yet here we are in 2020 talking about defunding the police as a mainstream conversation. And in some places like Minneapolis talking about disbanding the police. So what I find optimistic is that at least in, in the mainstream dialogue, topics that I was made to feel when I ran for office that folks considered to be fringe topics are now a part of the overall conversation. And that does give me some at least optimism about the impacts our movements are having. Okay, so that's Nikita Oliver, one of the leading voices of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Seattle. I'll be back with reporter Hannah Weinberger in a minute to talk about the latest coronavirus news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alaska Airlines is taking care to the next level with a renewed commitment to providing a higher standard of cleanliness and safety. From airport check-in to boarding, from takeoff to landing, next level care involves COVID-19 preparedness plans and procedures developed with the FAA and CDC. This includes electrostatic disinfectant sprayers and onboard filters that remove 99.95% of airborne particles. 
Alaska is also putting proper social distancing procedures in place, requiring masks of employees and guests, providing sanitizing stations and wipes, reconfiguring seating arrangements, limiting in-flight services, and more. When you decide it's time to fly, Alaska is prepared to take your travels to the next level. Learn more at alaskaair.com slash nextlevelcare. Welcome back. I've got Hannah Weinberger here now. Hannah covers science and environment for CrossCut and naturally has been tracking the coronavirus pandemic. Last week, King County entered phase two of the state's reopening plan. Hannah, what does it mean for the county to be in phase two? It doesn't mean much different than being in phase 1.5, according to a lot of the experts that I spoke with. There are some significant differences in terms of the fact that you can see people who live outside your household now safely and socially distanced, but a lot of the same establishments are open. They're just open at a slightly higher rate. A lot of establishments and businesses that were already open are open at twice the capacity that they were in phase 1.5. And some businesses like fitness classes are allowed to open at all. So you reported that in the week preceding the move to phase two, the county saw an increase in new cases of 47%. Why did the state grant the county's application if that was the case? In speaking with representatives from the Department of Health, one of the big things that they think about when considering whether a county can advance in phases is its holistic effort, uh, its cumulative risk factor relative to Hmm. the metric benchmarks that the state has set. So if a county is advancing or doing a good job within the five big metric groups. So are they able to track cases? Are they able to test? How sound is their medical infrastructure, et cetera? They don't need to be perfect on each of those metrics, but if they're doing things in certain areas that bolster the protectiveness or the preparedness of the county as a whole, the Secretary of Health will say, okay, they may have some problem points, but if they're generally doing a good job there, they can still advance. And so we've been seeing an increase in cases, but where are we at as far as deaths? So deaths and hospitalizations in King County have been trending flat. And over the past few months, they've been trending downward, which is significant. So even while there has been an uptick in cases in June relative to the beginning of the month, The people who are getting sick aren't the high-risk populations who are overwhelming Mm. hospitals and dying in large numbers. So the fact that we have more cases doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have more sustained cases or that this is a big issue. One of the things that Dr. Jeff Duchin, who is with the county, said on a media call last week was that he's thinking about this in terms of relative cases, So we didn't have very many cases to begin with. So when you say a 47% increase, that means that there were, at the time, 113 more cases that week than the previous week. It's not on the order of thousands. Hmm. So like you said, you've spoken with some officials, some, um, you know, Dr. Duchin. Uh, What did they tell you are the risks of entering phase two? What are they prepared to see? And what's the worst case scenario? The risks of entering phase two are people erroneously interpreting that as a reason to relax. So advancing through phases doesn't mean that the coronavirus is any less of a threat. And if we start treating 
protective measures like social distancing, masking, hand washing, et cetera, as less necessary because we're doing a good job, then we're going to see more cases. And that could put us in a really bad situation if that ends up meaning a surge. They're expecting people to do a, a pretty good job with this. You know, anecdotally, uh, a lot of the people that I spoke with are saying that they're seeing people wearing masks and socially distancing in their own lives. Um, and in situations where there are groups of people, like protests, people are overwhelmingly wearing masks. And so far, those protests haven't resulted in increases in hospitalizations or deaths. Hmm. So if they do see... a a second wave or an increase of this first wave, is there a possibility that we go back to phase 1.5 or, or phase one? That is always a possibility. Hmm. And what would it take for us to get to phase three? So to get to phase three, counties need to be able to show that their disease activity is flat or decreasing. So there are three really big areas of disease activity that uh, the Department of Health is looking at. The State Department of Health is looking at the number of new cases in two-week periods relative to the two weeks before that. They're looking at the trends in hospitalizations for lab-confirmed COVID-19. So are those cases flat or are they decreasing? And they're also looking at the infectiousness of the virus. So it looks like that there are more outbreaks within a two-week period relative to the two weeks before that. That's not good. Mm. If a county is able to show that its infrastructure and its residents are able to handle the freedoms of a new phase such that they don't see increases in concerning areas. They're able to move on to the next phase. Hmm. And so how long did the people you talked to think that we would be in phase two? They don't know. The consensus seems to be that we will be here for a while, though. Moving from 1.5 to 2 wasn't a huge jump, but moving from two to three might be a bigger one. Hmm. As a county is trying to reopen its economy, there are going to be hurdles that are difficult to pass in terms of our ability to keep infections low. And right now, experts and officials are not positive how long we will be in this stage, but they say that it will definitely be longer than how long we waited between 1.5 and two, which was two weeks. So... Hannah, I've got one more question yes. for you, and uh, feel free to to not answer this. But, uh, you know, you're somebody who is paying attention to every turn of the screw here. I wonder, does being in phase two change your life at all? I'm someone who has been isolated and or quarantined and or socially distancing since February. So within the past few weeks, I've started to feel more comfortable with the quarantine pod approach to life, which is mm. that you can see a certain number of people outside your household or your living situation who you don't ordinarily see so long as everyone is on the same page about your safety precautions and you're not seeing multiple people outside that pod. A doctor mm. that I spent time on the phone with last week was telling me his approach was even if you're allowed to see up to five people outside your household every week, it should probably be the same five people every week because for every person you're interacting with, you're interacting with everyone they've interacted with too. Right. So I'm definitely more relaxed. I've also gone to protests as a reporter. So that reset my quarantine clock every time I went. All right. Well, 
take care of yourself. <laughs> yes. Uh, I really appreciate you talking to me for a little bit, Hannah. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Hannah and Nikita Oliver for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the CrossCut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.